It may be the weekend, but there are no days off for the Zone Sports Network. You're listening to the Saturday Show. Can't wait. Can't, 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 can't wait. It's all weekend, baby. On 97.5, 1280 The Zone in the Zone Sports Network. For a brilliant start, here's Ingles, left-hand drive. Flares up top to Niang this time. He penetrates in the lane, cross-court to Ingles. Quick release three. Yes, sir! Joe Ingles from the left corner. 30-26, I love the quick release there, Ron. Bogdanovich, left side, open look, hits the three. And Bogey's talking to himself, going back the other way. Utah 85, LA 84. 10-16 left, game one. Let me be very clear. Where's your camera? Is that right there? Yes, sir. Donovan Mitchell is a superstar. Make no mistake about it. Top to O'Neal, rotates to Don. Deep three from Austin. Two-point game. 22-16, Patrick Beverly's in the game, hassling Donovan everywhere, comes off a favors pick once, twice, pulls and hits. Donovan's got 14 points in the first seven minutes. He is having an unbelievable quarter with so much on the line with the way the Clippers are Picks coming. out to Cousins. Cousins will take the three, miss it, rebound Ingles. Chess ahead to Donovan. Donovan gets by Cousins, kicks it back out to Bogdanovich, playing on a weak ankle, shall we call it. Retreats out with Morris guarding, calls Donovan to the ball. They swing right side to Donovan. Cousins defending. They're switching everything, so they got mismatches. Eight on the clock. Donovan driving at Cousins, loose with the dribble. Retreats out for a three and hit it. Jazz by seven, 57-50. 22-16, Patrick Beverly's in the game. Hassling Donovan everywhere, comes off of favors, pick once, twice, pulls and hits. Donovan's got 14 points in the first seven minutes. He is having an unbelievable quarter with so much on the line with the way the Clippers are coming. Jazz by 10, 63-53, crowd comes to their feet. Shot clock's at 13, game clock's at 16. I don't know if you can even hear me. Donovan gets a switch with Morris, six on the clock. Pulls back for a 32-foot three, and it's good. Are you kidding me? 27 for Donovan Mitchell. Here's a swing and a high fly ball. Center field. Bernard going back, still going back at the warning track. Jumps up, and it's gone. It's a two-run homer for Scott Schibler. We're tied at five. Welcome into the Saturday show. Eric, that was well done, sir. Putting a little montage together. I'm Jake Hatch, a.k.a. Yawk. Across from me is my good friend Alex Lundberg, a.k.a. Lundy. What's up, buddy? Oh, you know, just living the dream. Nice. Just, you know, enjoying enjoying my time. Enjoying this jazz run. 
Well, it's been fun. We're going to talk plenty about that today, I can tell you that much. Uh, Eric bringing us in there from some highlights from the Game 2 victory for the Utah Jazz over the Los Angeles Clippers. Game 3 in the Western Conference semifinals is tonight. We're going to talk about that ahead on today's show. But i got to say, first off, wonderful weather here along the Wasatch Front, but it's starting to get hazy, folks. <sighs> it's uh, wildfire season. Yeah, we've, we've got... We've got the gauntlet ahead of us. Yes, we do. So. Um, so be smart out there. Let's just PSA right off the top. Yeah. Be smart. Make sure your fires are completely out if you are in the backcountry doing anything with that. But regardless, it's wonderful weather. It's summertime here in Utah. I went to a fireworks show last night with my wife and kids. That was an absolute blast. And you can't beat Utah summers. Honestly, you cannot beat them. They're pretty awesome. Yeah. They are. They're pretty great. Weather's phenomenal. Uh, evenings, it cools off a little bit. You can just kind of sit outside and enjoy it. It's just awesome. But obviously that means better weather means it's playoff time, and we are in the midst, of, like Lundy said, of a pretty awesome run for the Utah Jazz. They are up 2-0 in their series against the Los Angeles Clippers. Uh, having a blast tracking this. I know, Lundy, you got your hand right in it because you're producing all of the broadcasts with David Locke. You're in the pre to have and post-game shows. You're working and grinding along. But let's start off uh, here, Lundy. What has impressed you the most is the Utah Jazz have gone up 2-0 in this series. Oh, man, where to even start with this? Um, That's why I, I left mean, it open-ended. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, what has surprised me is the, just the resiliency of the team. You know, the, the team is really what has made this possible. Donovan Mitchell is a huge part of that. You know, he's he's the catalyst, really, that – has has sparked this run. Mm-hmm. I mean, since he came back, the Jazz haven't lost. And pretty incredible. He's put up massive numbers, but it's not just Donovan. I mean, if you look at game two, look at the way that Bogdanovich took on Kawhi. That was insanely impressive. I don't think that the Jazz probably win that game without that effort. Um, you know, Clarkson was back to old form in game two, hitting a lot of shots, scoring a lot. Uh, Rudy Gobert has just been dominant. We've seen a lot from Favors. And so it's it it really is just this team is putting forth a full team effort. And that is really impressive to me because, I mean, we've seen it all season long. It shouldn't surprise me. We've seen it a lot. <laughs> but I, I like that. It shouldn't surprise us, but it does. Right. Because, I mean, what we've seen in the past, you know, what was it? It was like the, the 2015 Atlanta uh, Atlanta Hawks. Correct, yeah. Um, that were in a similar position as this Jazz team where they blew the doors off the regular season, got to the playoffs, and uh, just kind of meh. And that was it. You know, went out with a whimper. And there were a lot of you – know, I, I know that there were a lot of doubters that thought that this Jazz team would do the exact same thing, and they very much have not. Yeah, they've been phenomenal, and I am on the record as saying this. Donovan Mitchell is a superstar. There's no doubt about that. I know there are a lot of people out there who said, well, he's a really good player. He has moments of being able to be really good. No, we're seeing the ascension to true superstardom right before our very eyes. Actually, I didn't notice this until I actually saw a tweet earlier today. Do you know the um, – the, so obviously Michael Jordan, he is the GOAT in most people's eyes. Do you know who has scored the most points in a single playoff game since Michael Jordan went for that, was it 60, 63, if I'm not mistaken, against the Celtics? Uh, 
I don't I don't know who should, should be an easy answer. Is it LeBron? Nope. Kobe? No, it's Donovan Mitchell. His 57-point outing in the bubble last year in game one of that series against the Denver Nuggets is the most since Michael Jordan went for that 60-plus against the Celtics. That's insane. He is a legend becoming a legend right in front of our eyes. And he's only 24 years old, folks. Enjoy it. This is this is a lot of fun. Yeah. And, you know, the way that we've seen Donovan improve and the way that we've seen him really approach his game, um, I don't think anybody doubts that he is an absolute absolute student of the game but more than that he's a student of his own game where he watches film just relentlessly he studies what he does and identifies his own weaknesses and works relentlessly at fixing those kinds of things and that's why we've seen such a quick ascension in this amount of time and he's not done I don't think yeah he's not done there's no doubt about that and this has been just I'm I'm having a lot of fun with this. I am a nervous wreck for this Utah Jazz team. <laughs> I, I for some reason this this time of year, I know that I'm supposed to be quote unquote media and I'm supposed to kind of divorce myself from it. The Utah Jazz <laughs> though, man, they they do something. And I just I, I'm locked in with them. I'm having a blast. And you mentioned the fact that since Donovan Mitchell returned from that ankle injury, they have not lost. They've won six straight games here. Obviously, the venue changes tonight. They're headed to Staples Center down there in Los Angeles. I, I we all we know. I, I've been listening to the post games with the Los Angeles Clippers. They're motivated. They don't want to go out with a whimper in their own right. They have two guys who are considered quote unquote superstars in Paul George and Kawhi Leonard that are very very proud. Kawhi's won two different titles with two different franchises. He wants to make it three with three. But I gotta say. Everything I've seen from the Utah Jazz so far, we're so we're what one and a half series in, I guess we can call it technically. Mm-hmm. Everything I've seen from them gives me no reason to believe that they can't make a run to the Western Conference Finals and eventually the NBA Finals. Yeah, no, I hundred percent agree with you. This this team has really shown a lot of yeah. I mean, the first half of Game Two, sitting there in the booth watching that game as I was producing, I remember thinking. Like just the actual thought came in where it, it was just if they play like this, there's not a team in the NBA that can beat them. I, I would agree with that. Uh, they are playing at an extremely high level. I know there were some qualms going into the playoffs, obviously with the slow returns of both Mike Conley and Donovan Mitchell. A lot of people were like, "Well, is he going to throw the Jazz there? Are they getting beat off?" The, the nice part is, Lundy, is that we have seen them play without guys and we're talking stars in both Mike Conley and Donovan Mitchell and they've been able to kind of absorb those losses go out and play well and we don't know the status of Mike Conley yet for tonight's game it is my personal opinion this is just me speaking for myself let me be very clear about this I don't think we see him tonight that's just my personal opinion on the matter but this Jazz team has shown the ability time and time again all season long, that regardless of who's in the lineup, who's out of it, they play the same style, and they expect to go out there. And regardless of who's out there, they expect to go out there and play well and win. Yeah, and I'm I'm in agreement agreement with you about Mike Conley. I know that he traveled to L.A. with the team, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of people are really excited and optimistic about that. I don't believe that he plays this game. Um, I believe that there's a possibility he plays for Game Four, but I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't. Yeah, I. I just look at this, and this, uh, 
this Jazz team has been playing extremely well. And I know there are Jazz fans. And by the way, last night the Phoenix Suns went up 3-0 three, three on the Denver Nuggets. And I got to tip my cat to Phoenix. They are looking really, really good right now. I know there are Jazz fans, and I saw some of it on my social media feeds last night, who were saying, well, the Utah Jazz, if, if Phoenix is going to sweep the Nuggets, the Jazz have got to go make sure they, they keep pace. Okay, that's a great idea. But I'm telling you, that Denver team has run out of gas. Nikola Jokic has dragged that team as far as he possibly can go. He deserved the MVP. And by the way, congratulations. Mm -hmm. The first second-round pick in NBA history to win an NBA MVP. Guy from Serbia who has said his aspiration in life was to play in the Serbian League. Going to the NBA was just kind of gravy on top. And now he's he's an MVP. Just absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, you know, and like you said, Denver's run out of gas, you know, like – Nikola Jokic is incredible. He's had an incredible season. Mm-hmm. The Clippers are not the Nuggets. No. I mean, yet Nikola Jokic is the MVP this year, but Kawhi Leonard is Kawhi Leonard. And we saw what he did in the Dallas series. They fell down they you know, the same, yeah. same beginning after two games. And he he refuses to go out. And... Yeah, he hasn't been great the first two games because the Jazz have kind of locked him up and, you know, maybe some other factors, you know, whether that's fatigue or something else because, sure. you know, the load management well, he doesn't yeah. usually have to play this many minutes in this amount of time. Well, ask David Locke. He just he mentioned yesterday with DJ VK that Paul George just matched his longest games played streak at nine mm-hmm. in that game two uh, loss. And then Kawhi Leonard, the most he's played in a row this season – I think you said it was 12, and he is currently sitting at, sitting at 9 or 10 himself. So yeah. I, I'm with you on that. I think there's a load that is kind of starting to weigh down on him a little mm-hmm. bit potentially. So, yeah, there's there's all of those kinds of things, but these guys aren't superstars because the media crowned them so. They're superstars because they earned it on the court when it mattered the most, especially Kawhi Leonard. And so this is something that, you know, as as Jazz fans, it's really easy to be like, you know, the Jazz have all the momentum going into this game. You know, they've got the added pressure of now they need to match pace with Phoenix so that they are equally as rested when they get to the NBA Finals or they prevent Phoenix from getting that extra rest. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the, the Western Conference Finals, I mean, as well. Sure. Um, but it's 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 just not that simple because it, it's Kawhi Leonard. He's, he's an actual robot. I mean, you know, like he takes time off, sure, but... The guy doesn't show emotion. He doesn't show fatigue. He doesn't show tiredness. He's going to come out. He's going to perform when his team needs him to. And the Jazz can try to have an answer for that. But that's, I think, the best case scenario when you get Kawhi's back against a wall is you can try to have an answer. But I don't think that they necessarily will have an answer uh, to slow him down. The best that they can do is keep everybody else rolling on the offensive end for the Jazz. Yeah. And just hope that you outscore Kawhi. That and see right there, that that's kind of the thing about it. I feel like with the venue change, the Clippers, they're gonna feel fairly confident they're finally back at home. But I like the this Utah Jazz team. They similar to what you were just talking about with Kawhi, doesn't don't show a lot of emotion one way or the other, just refuses to kind of quit. Well, this Jazz team is very similar in that. And it's, just, it's a collective effort. That's the one thing about this team is they just kind of go out there and they say, okay, we're going to play our brand of basketball. We're, we're going to make – and we don't care who's in the lineup. Joe Ingles has been a broken record with DJ and PK saying, okay, I don't care who's hurt. 
We just do our thing. Mm-hmm. And Joe has missed time this season. He, uh, we've had Mike Conley, Donovan Mitchell. The, the thing is, this Jazz team, they just go out there and they understand who they are. And that, by the way, tip of the cap to everybody from Dennis Lindsay to Justin Zanuck on to Quinn Snyder, his coaching staff. They have implemented a, a team-wide philosophy that has, I think, permeated what these players, their, kind of their ethos, their thought processes. Okay, who do we have? All right, let's go out and do this thing. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned earlier on in this segment, Donovan Mitchell has ascended to what I consider to be superstar status. Mm-hmm. And having him be a superstar and having Rudy Gobert, who's an all-star, and also Mike Conley at some point here, we hope, returns as also an all-star, you've got a three-headed monster right at the top of your lineup that can contend with almost anybody. And that's my personal belief is that that three-headed monster is as good as anybody in the league right now. Oh, 100%. You know, and I think that I know that there were some, you know, there was some nervousness in game two. You know, I mean, the Jazz were up big. They looked great. Like I said, the first half, I thought there's nobody in the league that can beat this team if they're playing like this. Second half, a little bit of a different story. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Clippers started to run that zone defense, and it really ground the Jazz offense to a, a halt. Yeah. I think, and this is just my personal opinion, I could be very wrong about this, but I think that if slash when Mike Conley comes back into the lineup, something similar like that happens, it does not throw the Jazz nearly that off. No. I mean, their, their offense, sure, it might slow down a little bit, but but you don't notice nearly the, the drastic drop-off that you did in Game 2. No, a- absolutely not. And the one thing right now, by the way, is that Ty Lue, I think he's searching for answers. Oh, 100%. He was frantic. He was guessing in Game 2. Uh, David Locke pointed out, and I hadn't noticed this, that they put two lineups on the court together during that Game 2 loss that literally, literally had never played together in the entire history of the NBA. Yeah, it was two brand new, like, you know, and he was pointing that out during the game broadcast. Yeah. These guys have not spent a minute on the floor together. They have no... They don't know each other's style. They don't have any on on court chemistry, um, and that signaled that Ty Lue was just throwing anything he could at the wall just to see what stuck. And I think that, you know, maybe it was a halftime adjustment that led to that zone that really hurt the Jazz offensively. Sure, because you know credit to the Clippers, they played great defense when they were in that zone. Um, to me, it looked more like. It was just yet another guess, and it worked. See, and that's the thing. The zone is a – I feel like the NBA level, if you go to a zone, you're you're really digging for something. And, yes, credit to Ty Lue. Apparently, he stumbled upon something. The blind squirrel and that whole analogy mm-hmm. fits in this circumstance. And it worked. But I can tell you this much. If you're going to think that's your answer for the rest of the series, that ain't your answer. Ty Lue. That ain't your answer at Los Angeles Clippers. That is not going to be it because I'm sure Quinn Snyder has analyzed that film because he's a film junkie like we mentioned Mm -hmm. Donovan Mitchell is too. They watch a lot of film and I guarantee he's already got a game plan. Okay guys, if they go to the zone, this is what we're doing. And the the biggest thing is anybody who's played basketball, when you play against the zone, you have to have somebody who can flash into that high post area, run that free throw line and force the defense to collapse and then kick it Mm -hmm. or go to the bucket and score. I guarantee the Jazz have worked on that now, and they have a game plan for it. And moves yours, Ty Lue. What you got now? Yeah. Well, and, you know, part of what that zone did as well to kind of really shut down that offense, and David Locke pointed this out during the broadcast, um, the one thing that fires Quinn Snyder up the most and just gets him 
angry beyond reason is there's only one thing defensively that you can do to stop his offensive system and that's not allow the the blender to get going by Correct. holding guys that cut oh yeah yeah the and putting hands on guys mm-hmm. yeah putting them holding them preventing them from running holding them still which you know if the refs see it should be a foul but there's so much other things going that they're not always going to see it but Quinn Snyder was riding those refs really hard when he noticed that that was what was happening with that zone. That was one of the, the technical aspects that they were doing. They were, you know, kind of gumming up the engine, preventing the parts from moving around. And it stopped the ball movement because guys couldn't get open. They couldn't get to where they needed to go. And so I expect that Quinn Snyder will have had made X's and O's adjustments mm-hmm. to prevent that. But he's also going to be in the ref's ear early and often to let them know. They're holding our guys there. They can't do that. Keep an eye on it. Keep an eye on it. He's going to be in there. You're constantly saying, look at that. Do you see that holding right there? That's a foul. You need to call that. And if the refs do, that also kind of just opens things back up, you know, because the players have to adjust to how the refs are calling it. And if the refs are not allowing them to hold players when they try to cut inside, then they're not going to really be able to defend Quinn's system. Yeah, it's going to open things up. And I know there are a lot of there's been a lot of talk about the Jazz and their struggles against switching defenses. Well, doesn't that go out the window in this series because the Jazz are just absolutely pulverized. And mm-hmm. okay, pulverized maybe is the wrong term, but they've been able to play against the switching defense. That was kind of one of the quote-unquote Achilles heels of this Jazz team is when they went when teams started switching, the Jazz had issues with it. I think we're and I'm I'm probably I'm probably sounding like a broken record myself. I keep saying that the Utah Jazz they have really made what was their weaknesses into I not strengths probably not the right term, but they have been able to go around and work around those mm-hmm. perceived weaknesses. The switching defense apparently is no longer an issue for this Jazz team, and I think that big part of it, the shooting on this Jazz team, it's as deep as any in the league, mm-hmm. if not the deepest. You can go down the roster. Eight out of the ten guys are legitimate threats from three. The only two guys are Derek Favors and Rudy Gobert, and all they do is dunk on your head. <laughs> so, yeah, and you know to play off your, both that point that uh-huh. you know the Jazz have addressed their weaknesses, as well as you know like the switching defenses and the this zone and all of those kinds of things. You know, studying the film before Game One, even Quinn Snyder was asked about you know well this this Clippers defense does a lot of switching one through five, you know. Are you concerned about it? How are you going to address it? And Quinn Snyder's response was simply, there's nothing that they can do that we haven't seen already this season. There you go. And we've seen how they addressed the switching one through five. Correct. The zone was something that was unexpected. It's not going to be unexpected in game three. Yeah, I I, see. That's the thing is they threw something at it. It worked for a time. Jazz still won the game. They're up 2-0. And, yeah, you can try and go back to that if you want. But this is – I know it's a cliche in the NBA. By the time these series get going, you already know a lot about your opponents. But by the time you reach the midway point of the series, you know everything there is to know about these teams. Mm-hmm. So, okay, game two, you threw out the you threw out the zone. I know that actually there were some people talking about at the tail end of that D- Dallas Mavericks series that Ty Lue in – their minds was actually trying to hold on to that small lineup uh, with uh, is it Nick Batum? Nick Batum mm-hmm. playing, kind of playing that five. There was some thought that he was trying to hold on to that to play against the Jazz and counter Rudy with a smaller lineup. Well, the Jazz already saw it. They had it ready for game one and it didn't work. They went to this zone defense. It worked for a time. Jazz won that game. I'm with you, Alex. The, I think eventually we're gonna we're eventually it's gonna be okay. Well, what you got? 
throw it at us, and your guys are going to have to beat our guys. The nice part is the Jazz are up 2-0. In my opinion, and we'll talk more about this, kind of our expectations for tonight's game, and if you guys want to weigh in on this, we'd love to have you guys do it on social media. At 24-7 Lundy, at Jacob C. Hatch, Eric behind the glass for us, at Eric18Utah. Our question of the day here on the Saturday show is, what are your expectations for Game 3 tonight? I think most people are comfortable with a split. A sweep? Man. Man. Celebrate. Let's do this thing. But I think everybody that I can think of is probably okay with going one-on-one in L.A. Mm -hmm. You know, and my gut about tonight is that the Jazz are – they're probably going to drop this one. But I will preface that with, you know, like I have a few of my friends that we go back and forth with some of our thoughts on the games. I've texted them, I think, in each of the last three games. It might be four now that, you know, well, my gut tells me the Jazz are going to lose tonight. And, uh, (laughs) you know, my gut has been really wrong. So when I tell you right now that my gut tells me that the Jazz are going to lose tonight, take that as you will. That that is what I'm feeling. That is what I think will happen. However, I have been wrong a lot with that recently. I think most of us have. So, yeah, question of the day. What are your expectations for Game 3 tonight as the Utah Jazz battle the Los Angeles Clippers? By the way, pregame coverage here on the Zone Sports Network, your exclusive radio home of the Utah Jazz, will begin at 5 o'clock out there on the plaza. There is a watch party occurring tonight here at the arena. If you want to come out and celebrate with thousands of other Jazz fans, watch the game, please do so. We'll have more on this throughout the afternoon. Coming up next, we're going to talk with Shane Young. He covers the NBA for Forbes Sports as an analyst and a columnist. Going to talk to him. He's actually been embedded with Los Angeles Clippers at multiple points this year. Get his insight on what he expects to see from this series, Game 3 tonight, as well as some of the other thoughts on the NBA playoffs. We'll get to all of that next, right here on The Saturday Show. Whether you're stuck at the mall, in the yard, or making a quick trip to the home improvement store. We've got your back. It's gonna be May. This is the Saturday Show on 97.5, 1280 The Zone in the Zone Sports Network. Welcome back to the Saturday Show here on the Zone Sports Network. Excited to welcome in our guest coming up here momentarily, Shane Young from Forbes Sports. I've gotten to know Shane better part of a year now. I've been having on with DJ and PK to talk about the NBA and the NBA playoffs. Shane, thanks for taking the time. How are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks for having me on today, man. Absolutely. Uh, let's start here, Shane. I know you've spent a lot of time in Los Angeles covering the Clippers. Uh, you, you've mentioned this to me in our conversations off air. What is your uh, kind of read on how the Clippers are absorbing or kind of adapting right now down 2-0 in this Western Conference semifinals? It's actually a little strange to me because the first, I would say, the, the whole first season was Kawhi and PG, and then I, go, I guess like maybe half of this season, it's felt as if they perform better when they're when they're on top of their game, when they're when they're the ones leading or when they're the ones I mean people have called them front runners for a while now. You know, all things are going great whenever they're leading, but you know, whenever they have their backs against the wall is whenever they fold. And it has felt like, to be completely honest with you, it has felt like since February, whenever Kawhi and PG had to miss a lot of time and the others had to step up and really I guess uh proved themselves to be worthy in the rotation and, and actually propelled them to victories whenever the guys were missing games. Since that moment, 
including the Dallas series, it, it feels like they just are a lot better and more poised and more competent and confident whenever they are against a challenge like this. So, I mean, hey, th- this series, they're looking to be the first team in NBA history to come back from two 0-2 deficits in a single postseason run. Uh, I, I just always have been cautioning people that Utah is not the Dallas Mavericks, so this would be a, a, a very uphill battle. But I think they are, to answer your question, I think they are embracing this identity, I guess, of, of being a, a team that is going to have to come back that, like this. Uh, Shane, so we just saw the news that Mike Conley is out again tonight. How does that change this yeah. game? You know, does it does it change it at all from <clears throat> games one and two now that it's in Los Angeles and they still don't have to worry about Mike Conley? I don't know if it changes a lot for me. Uh, my thing has been, I'm not sure if you guys agree, but my thing has been don't bring Mike back until you lose or until he's 110% healthy. Like, even if he's good to go, I still would sit him until until things start to look shaky. And so far, it, it has not looked shaky at all. I mean, you know, Utah is getting every look they could possibly want. I think they're creating, they are creating more, more open looks or I guess to a, to a certain degree – the same looks they did against Memphis. And for you to be doing that against, you know, this type of link the Clippers have, this type of uh, veteran presence on the defensive end they have, like that says something. So, I mean, I think I, I think Conley needs to just kind of chill and, and not really try to come back or force his way back because we have seen guys come back a little bit too quick from hamstring injuries, even when they think they're good to go. You kind of need that extra, you know, you know, week or so to really get right. So I don't think it really changes anything, even if like you know, because I, I was telling somebody this the other day. Even when Mike's not there, like it's hard to imagine Conley providing the type of scoring output or the type of the type of juice that Jordan Clarkson has given them. Like at, at best, I think it would be neutral. I mean, I, I think Clarkson has done amazing in that role. Yeah, Shane, I wanted to ask you about Jordan Clarkson, actually. You brought up my my next point here. He seems to be the ultimate uh, make-or-miss guy, and for the most part this season Mm -hmm. he's been on. What have you seen from him? What's kind of your analysis of what you expect from him the rest of this series? Are the Clippers going to be able to slow him down, I guess is the question. (laughs) Well, actually, I I really did believe, like truly thought that even though Donovan is averaging 41 a game, even though Donovan had 30 been in game two if i'm not mistaken somewhere mm-hmm. around there yep. um jordan is the one that tilted the game for them in game two i don't know if they win without his without his you know audaciousness just to come up and shoot i mean it it was it was actually remarkable to see in person i mean i've seen him play a couple of times in person but it's like he truly does not care who's in front of him he does not care who's closing out when he comes around the screen um and any like he he is just like he falls into the moment, and he truly believes, like, for certain moments, he's the best player on the floor, and it's, it's actually funny to, to watch. But uh, some of those shots were just were just wild. I mean, he banked one in in front of the Clippers bench, nailed another one over a close uh, Avita Zubats that was closing out and had a hand right in his face. Um, and I, I, I have said this many times. I think that what gets overlooked in the playoffs or what gets overlooked – from guys like Jordan Clarkson, and what he does, what he does a masterful job at doing is just getting the ball in the air. Like you need shot creation, even if he's not the most efficient guy on some nights. I mean, lately he has been, but even if, like if he, like if he comes out and has a bad game tonight, 
I still think you need that guy that's not going to be afraid of it, that's going to get up shot, that can actually create. I mean, when's the last time we've seen him or we've seen anyone in Utah be able to break down PG like he did in the opening sequence? I think it was the first couple minutes of the game. Clarkson crossed him over, got a pretty good look at a three, and, and drilled it. So, I mean, you need more guys than that than just one. And if, if Jordan wasn't there, it would all rely on, on Donovan's shot creation and then Joe Ingles as the playmaker. I think you need that extra guy. Uh, we saw a lot in game two that the Clippers were, it looked like they were trying a lot of different things, a lot, you know, some things new, some things that they'd done before, just trying to find any kind of answer for the Jazz. What kinds of adjustments yeah. do you expect to see in game three? Well, I do expect Quinn Snyder to have some sort of answer. It might not be an answer that works, but I, I, I expect them to have some type of offensive answer to that zone that the Clippers put out there. I mean, the Clippers went with zone for a large portion of the second half, it felt like. I mean, it got them back into the game because Utah just froze up a little bit. I think Quinn, even if the shots don't go in, I think that's something that also has to be discussed. Is like, Let's just say Utah doesn't look great tonight offensively, but they're at least attacking the zone. Then you can say that adjustment was made. It's just the results weren't, weren't what Quinn Snyder thought. But he's one of the smartest coaches in the NBA, I think. He is probably the most prepared right up there with Eric Spolstra from a game-to-game or series-to-series basis. Like No one probably watches more film than those guys. And they're going to be able to get into the zone a little bit more because he's going to instruct them what to do. Something that struck, something that stuck out to me watching the Jazz try to, I don't know, like combat that zone and that they couldn't do for a good portion of the game was they didn't really screen that much. I think you can always, even if it's a zone, you can still bring Gobert up the screen. Like, you know, that's not illegal against the zone. You can still do that. I think they, towards the middle of the third quarter, they, they figured out a few things that they could carry over from, from into this game. Um, and also getting the ball into the middle of the floor. It's like, you know, against the zone, you don't always have to just take the threes to break the zone. You can get the ball, whether it's Ingles or Donovan, to the middle of the, to the free throw line area and kind of read the floor and have cutters, you know, go baseline or, or even some screen action there with Gobert. So um, I, I think they're going to have adjustments offensively. Defensively, I don't, I don't necessarily think the Clippers can do anything uh, differently. I think they are, they are closing out well on these guys um, for the most part, running them off the line. I thought they re- did a really good job against Donovan Mitchell in the second half. It just, you know, they kind of wasted that performance because how often is Donovan going to have 10 points on, you know, what was it, um, maybe 16, 17 shots like he did in the second half the other night. So, you know, they, they might have wasted that bad half from Donovan, and then they should have been 1-1 coming out of Utah, but it's 2-0 now. Obviously, this is a make-or-miss league, Shane. You know as well as anybody covering as closely as you do. Yeah. Uh, is this as simple as the Jazz, if they make their shots, they'll close out this series, whether it's in five or six games? Yes, and and really, like, you never like to be the guy that goes on radio waves and says, like, oh, it's all simplistic. It's only about making or missing <laughs> shots. They have to make shots. Like, But really, this isn't college basketball. Like, college basketball, there are more tactical things that you have to look at because not everyone, like, even even college basketball players that are wide open are going to miss shots. So you have to find ways to get inside a little bit more. You have to be more a little bit more creative in your offense, or at least that's the hope. In the NBA, it's like, I mean, you saw it down the stretch of game two. I think the Clippers generated six 
absolutely clean looks that you would you would you would love to have as any coach in the NBA because these are veteran guys these are these are experienced professional players that take around 800 shots a day it seems like in practice or shooting around and it's like if you get them in a wide open scenario they're going to they're going to be licking their chops and they're going to be wanting that all the time and someone asked Ty Lue after the game like were you happy with the shot quality you got down the stretch and he said absolutely he said very happy He's like, what more can you ask for as a coach? Because Marcus Morris missed two or three down the stretch. Reggie Jackson missed one to take, I think, uh, to cut the lead in half um, when it was jazzed by eight or something. And uh, PG just continues to miss. I don't know what that dude's problem is. He needs to get it together. <laughs> but um, I, I do think that, uh, you know, I was looking at some numbers earlier right before we got on here, and the Clippers on three-pointers with six feet of space between the shooter and the defender – the Clippers are nine of thirty-two. I mean, you can't really do much with that. I mean, it's it's actually a miracle, to be honest with you, that the Clippers were in both of those games in the final minute and a half. Um, I thought Utah was just going to run away with it in Game Two, but but they didn't. So I mean, yeah, it's a make or miss league, and Utah has shot well on open threes. They could even shoot a little bit better, to be honest with you. But the Clippers, they have some progression coming their way, I think. Uh. You had mentioned, you know, that Paul George is struggling. We've all kind of seen that. Is that something yeah. that is going on with him mentally? Is it something schematically that the Jazz are doing? Is it a combination of both? What do you think is the reason that he's struggled so much in this series so far? I do think they are baiting him into taking uh, – I thought his shot quality got better in game two. Um, he just missed. But in game one, you could tell the Jazz are baiting him into taking exactly what they want, which is – what. I like to call it the Memphis range because Memphis takes the most short, short mid-range shots and floaters in the NBA. And I think I think PG was getting a little, you know, settling a little bit. You could see Gobert on him. He was instead of trying to really beat him with his foot speed, he was settling for mid-rangers. I think, um, you know, instead of, you know, he's been really good at putting his head down and, and going into the paint. But it seems like against Utah, it's like, okay, let me get halfway there, then pull up. And, you know, that's a really tough shot to make. That intermediate shot is really hard to make. And the Clippers took 26 of those shots in game two. Um, I, you know, something PG could also do better at is, is making probably better plays off the dribble, not necessarily shots for himself. But but uh, Kawhi seems to be the only direct playmaker that's opening up Marcus and, and all these guys for open threes. I think PG can get into the paint and do that a little bit more. But his problem has always been he turns the ball over far too much in those in those sequences so that has to dial down as well um but hey 27 points in game two on decent shooting you know decent efficiency wasn't great wasn't terrible um but at home i know you guys know this at home the clippers have not played well except for one game and that was game seven of, of the dallas series yeah, Shane, I want to get some thoughts from you on the other series going on, obviously. We saw Phoenix go up 3 nothing last night on the Denver Nuggets. Is this series over? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Is, is, I mean, is it a sweep, like, is, I guess, is the question. Um, I kind of feel like Denver will have an answer because it, often if you see a team go down 3-0, that, that team that's down 3-0 is, you know, <laughs> that, that finally gets a fire lit under them for some reason. 2-0 didn't, so 3-0 might. Um, I kind of feel like I kind of feel that way about the Clippers too. Like if they go down 3-0 tonight, they'll probably win Monday. But you know the series will be a wrap at that point. Um, so I don't know. They could probably go five um, in this series with Suns and Nuggets. But I, hey, Phoenix, 
it is remarkable what they've done to have a team. And, and, and by the way, this is, this is something I'm actually feeling vindicated right now because this is something I've said before, they, before the Suns started this playoff run. Everyone talking about, and apologies if you guys thought this as well, but everyone talking about, like, no playoff experience for Mikel Bridges, you know, Cam Johnson, DeAndre Ayton, Devin Booker might not show up in the, in the biggest moments because they haven't been on that stage. I just don't think that matters, particularly when you have Chris Paul and Monty Williams leading your squad, probably the two like two of the best leaders and motivators and, and guys that are going to get you pumped up for every single moment of every single game. Um, and, and, you know, Chris is like an extension of a coach on the floor. So the experience to me did not matter, despite Denver having been there a few times. And, hey, Denver is missing their best shot creator at the guard spots. I kind of expected this type of run over by Phoenix. Uh, continuing looking at some of the other series, uh, what are th- your thoughts on, on the uh, current series going on in the East? I mean, Brooklyn and Milwaukee has been fascinating because, you know, going into the series, a lot of folks thought that Mil- Milwaukee's point of attack defense or switchability with True Holiday Chris Middleton and Giannis, and even P.J. Tucker, that's four guys that you can realistically put on either Kyrie or um, or KD on switches and, and just force them into, into some bad shots. But so far through two and a half games, I mean, that the end of game three was bizarre to say the least. But I think we've seen that Brooklyn is the best offense we've ever seen against really good really good and, and robust defenses. Like, I, I think it doesn't matter what kind what kind of coverage you give them. They're going to have some type of answer for it. Like they're, they are the ultimate cheat code in the half court. I mean, their half court numbers are better than Golden State's from that from that five or six year run. It's it, it's kind of sickening to see, and and they're doing it without James Harden too. It's 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 marvelous to see. I don't I I don't think Milwaukee will win another game in the series. And of course, I'll say that, and they might come back and win. So we'll see what happens. But uh, with, with Philly and Atlanta, might be the most might be the most entertaining series because of the game-to-game adjustments and stuff that's going on. How can they stop Embiid? Because Embiid, I would say, right in front of Donovan Mitchell is the best player in the playoffs so far. There's really not a, a lot of stuff you can do against him besides giving him full-on double teams. You can't you can't give him one-and-a-half double. You can't give him that soft double. You have to go full double. And his passing, to me, has been the biggest improvement or the biggest trait that he's improved since last year. So, you know, we're looking at Brooklyn and Philly guys, and I think, you know, you're going. That's an unstoppable force in Embiid in the next round, but it's also like the best score I've ever seen in Kevin Durant combating that. So, I, you know, Brooklyn still feels like the team after after a round and a half. All right, Shane. Last thing before we let you go here, are you calling for a split between the Jazz and the Clippers down there in LA? Where do you think things are going? <laughs> um. I, all right. So when it was two old Jazz, I thought okay. Split for the Clippers in Staples Center seems like the best case because I, I think Utah, they've, they've been a decent road team. You know, they, they can still get their shots. They can still, you know, that's not going to change. Um, I kind of want to see how tonight goes. I think the Clippers will win tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, they just have to. And then, you know, if, it, if it's a convincing win, if it's not one that they just, they barely get it done in the last few seconds or a few minutes, then I think, I think we could be looking at 2-2 going back to Salt Lake. All right. Well, we will see. Shane, thank you for taking the time. Look forward to catching up with you again soon, all right? Good one.
All right, there you go. Shane Young, a big thank you to him for joining us. You can find him at Forbes Sports. Does a great job covering the NBA. You can follow him on Twitter at YoungNBA, Y-O-U-N-G-N-B-A, YoungNBA on Twitter. Thank him for taking the time to join us here. Coming up on the other side, Lundy, we're going to talk about technical fouls. Rewarding the people who've been dumb in sports, I guess is the easiest way to say it. We'll get to all that next. This is the Saturday Show right here on the Zone Sports Network. Let's go live! We talk jazz, utes, cougars, and aggies, even on the weekend. Weekend! You're locked on to the Saturday Show on 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. If you're coming from the street with dirty shoes on your feet, that's a technical foul. If you switch the radio to some modern music show, that's a technical foul. If you touch the thermostat, you'll get hit with a bat. Cause that's a technical foul. You will feel my wrath. That's a technical foul. Personal file, 69, offense. He was giving them the business. A technical foul. Welcome in. It is time for technical fouls here on the Saturday show. Uh, we're going to be talking about f- people doing dumb things in sports. Lundy, go ahead and get us started this week. All right. Well, we've been talking a lot about the NBA so far this show, so I'm sure. going to keep it right there. Okay. Uh, obviously, you know, this isn't the technical foul, but to kind of set it up, you know, earlier this week, we saw Rudy Gobert awarded the defensive player of the year. Three times. Three time. Um which I loved just the video that they put out his teammates responding or surprising him with it, you know, and he responds by saying, I couldn't have done it without you guys. Joe Ingles said, we know, <laughs> but the, uh, the man who is, who spent more time saying that he should be the defensive player of the year than any other NBA player that I've ever seen, uh, Ben Simmons in media availability after Gobert won defensive player of the year said that he is not concerned with individual awards because his goal is winning a championship. Um, Ben, technical foul because we have a lot of video and audio of you openly campaigning for this award. Absolutely. Um, And not just this award, other awards during your NBA career. Uh, So to come out and just be like, well, I don't care about individual awards. Like, really? Moving the goalposts. Really? Sounds a little bit like sour grapes, so a technical foul on openly lying to the media. Absolutely. All right, Eric, you got one for us. Go ahead. Yeah, Garrett Cole. Now, you'd think the simple answer to the question of, you know, are you altering what you use on the baseball? Now, that's a pretty simple question, right? Sure. If you heard that, you would probably say – no, that's yeah. a, that's a stupid question. Why why are you why are you asking me? Most that? guys probably would do that. Deny, yeah. deny, deny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Clown question, bro. Yeah. Thank you, Bryce Harper. So, Garrett Cole answered more like, "It's <sighs> <laughs> pretty good." Well, I mean, <laughs> we've got the uh, audio of this somewhere. I guarantee it. Yeah, uh, I don't, I I mean, from generation to generation, guys learn a lot of different things, but, yeah, I, uh, yeah, and he just kind of 
trailed off. Now I, I should have had the audio, but I just kind of came up with this and, last. No, time. you actually you answered about as well as he did. Uh, so I bet I'll have that bravo on on just kind of recreating it because that's exactly what happened. So yeah, technical <laughs> foul. Here's the thing: the spider tack issue. The, the a lot of guys saying they're making the the mixture of rosin and sunscreen. It's apparently very sticky. Major League Baseball, if you're going to crack down on it, crack down on it. But at the same time, I think there's a very good point to be made. Pete Alonzo from the New York Mets saying that, you know what? I don't want a guy who's throwing 99 lose control and have that come hurtling at my head. He said mm-hmm. there's something to be said for these guys being able to control that ball a little better and us being able to understand that that ball ain't going to come flying at a body part that we don't want it to hit. Right. You know, and uh, Trevor Bauer actually had addressed this earlier, yeah. you know, a few years ago. He talked about this specific thing, said – there is no possible way to get spin rates this high mm-hmm. that we're seeing with a lot of these other pitchers unless you're using some sort of illegal substance. And then the year that he won, you know, what some people call his Mickey Mouse Cy Young, just <laughs> last year with the, the Reds, sure. um, Trevor Bauer's spin rate actually jumped up to those levels that he was talking about. So he And they continued through the first part of this year uh-huh. with the Dodgers until specifically called out by MLB, and they said – you know, we're going to start punishing. And suddenly Trevor Bauer's spin rate dropped down to what it was before. Oh, there you go. So, so you know, it's it's interesting to see, you know, you, it, it's yeah. something that is trackable. It's You don't even have to bust the guy using it. Just look at the spin rate. You know, on the big show yesterday, Austin just made a point and he was like, you should just legalize everything in baseball. And I honestly don't hate that point. It's not a bad point. You should point. let them do steroids, juice the balls, let them have the substances. And in the end, won't it all kind of come out in the wash? In some ways, sure. But <laughs> There's a comedian that said something to the effect of, uh, I want the best athletes science can give me. <laughs> it's, hey, you, you never know. All right, I got a quick one here. Uh, by the way, uh, technical foul to rookie um, home plate umpire Eric Bacchus. This is from earlier this week on Thursday. Uh, there was a game between the Chicago White Sox. They were rallying against the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, Jose Abreu, and he is not a small man. Anybody who's watched what Chicago White Sox, he wears number 79. He is a true slugger in every sense of the word. Just a big dude. Well, he kind of was moving. He was on deck, and a play came, and the play's coming home to play. He kind of moved to maneuver himself to kind of uh, coach his teammate as he's coming into home plate. Well, rookie umpire Eric Bacchus, the bat was on the was in the was where the play was going to be made. He picks it up and throws it behind him just to get it out of the way literally throws it right into the knees of Jose Abreu and takes him out. So he kneecapped him, and his dead, deadspin says, this is a scene right out of Casino going down right here. <laughs> uh, Abreu was fine for the most part based on what I understand about it, but, yeah, it was pretty funny to see that because Bacchus, he's trying to get that uh, bat out of the way, had no idea that Abreu was running behind. and It's natural. It happens in the league. It happens at every level of baseball. But, yeah, he gets kneecapped Just by a rookie home plate umpire. Accidental Tanya Harding. Yeah, a little bit. So there you go. All right. That'll do it for technical fouls. We'll be back next week with more going on. If you guys have suggestions of them, send them in, send them in on social media. I'd love to hear from you guys on those. Coming up next, we're going to be talking about a world record set right here in our backyard. The Iron Cowboy, James Lawrence. I uh, did something that I think is absolutely insane. We'll explain more of that next right here on the Saturday show. The weekend is here, and we're breaking down the teams that you're passionate about. Oh, really? This is the Saturday show on 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network.
Welcome back to the Saturday show here on the Zone Sports Network. Hour two underway. Yawk and Lundy along for the ride for you guys on a Saturday afternoon. Hope you all are doing great wherever you might be. Uh, Lundy, we're going to talk about something cool here in a moment. A world record set in our very own backyard. And I told you about this right before we went live with it. And it's pretty incredible. But we're going to bring in James Lawrence now. And some of you may know his name. Some of you may know his nickname, the Iron Cowboy. James, how are you, sir? Well, if I'm being honest, I'm exhausted, but I'm good. Okay, so James, I have been following your work for a while. When I was back producing another show here on our station, we had you on, if I recall correctly, to talk about your 50-50-50 deal where you did 50 triathlons in 50 states in 50 days. Uh, Pretty incredible accomplishment in that own regard. But you just recently completed what they call the Conquer 100, and you actually did Conquer 101. Explain to our listeners what exactly you did for 101 straight days. Uh, well, we did a full-distance triathlon, which is a 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile bike, followed by a full marathon run, which is 26.2 miles, totals 140.6 miles. So over the course of 100 days, you ended up doing uh, 14,060 miles. And um, after the Conquer 100 project was over, we decided to shock everybody and do one more. And so on day 101, I got up and I did it all again. Uh, so James, as, as somebody who's like, my only experience with anything that has the word marathon in it involves a couch and extended versions of Lord of the Rings. Like, how is how did you get into the Like, what kind of mental and physical fortitude does it take to to do this kind of thing, not just once, but 100 times, 101 times? Uh, I, I would say it's a lifetime of dedicating myself to uh, developing grit and ment- mental toughness. It's not just something you show up and one day decide to do. Um, it, it's been building blocks and stepping stones to get to this point. Uh, we've been we've been breaking world records for over uh, a decade now, and so uh, this was just the the final piece to the journey, the puzzle, if you would. And um, yeah, we were, we were quite humbled to be able to accomplish this in our backyard and in our home of Utah. Yeah, James, I had a buddy suggest to me that I follow you on Instagram when this was a kind of starting out. You started this March first, and your your endeavor. You said a hundred straight days into these full distance triathlons. I probably started following it, I, I believe, in the first couple of weeks, if I'm not mistaken. And every day, I would tune in, I'd, I'd hop on Instagram, and I'd pull up your feed, and your daughter did an incredible job chronicling everything you guys were accomplishing throughout this. If I'm not mistaken, when you got to 51, that set the record. Is, is that right? Yeah, that, that's correct. 51's record, and then we broke a record every single day after that, um, which was a lot of fun to do as well. Okay, so why why do this? I, you mentioned the fact you've, you've broken all these records. It's kind of something mean, you've built up to, you said, throughout your life. But why this? Why 100 straight days of a full-distance triathlon? Well, 51 seemed seemed easy to just do it by one. 75 didn't scare me, and so the kind of the next fun number was 100. Um, and we did it to raise money for Operation Underground Railroad. Ended up raising over a quarter million dollars to them, which was super humbling and uh, grateful that we were able to do that. James, so when when did this kind of start for you? Like, not just the, you know, the, the Conquer 100, 
but just triathlons in general. When did you really start to get into that? Uh, probably 2006 would have been my first uh, kind of get my toe in the water experience. Uh, just started doing local sprint triathlons and uh, getting into the community with my fun, and we were just having a lot of fun racing and getting to know people, and I would just turn into turn into a hobby for us. And how long have you been doing this professionally then? Uh, I'm still not a professional triathlete. I'm an amateur. Um, okay. it, it turned in it turned in full time once we started breaking world records. But my my main source of income is is doing uh, speaking speaking for corporations. I've had an opportunity to speak on uh, hundreds of stages in 48 different countries, and so that's kind of how I feed, how I feed my family. That's absolutely incredible. So you, you've done this all as an amateur along the way. I know you had a bunch of great sponsors who kind of took care of you along the way. I know you had a two. Uh, are they are they friends of yours that were kind of your your compatriots throughout all this? I know you had hundreds of other people who would come do different events with you. But you had at least two guys I know that did this every day with you. Yeah, so we call them the wingmen. Um, they they were with me the whole fifty, and so they wanted to be part of this journey too. And Aaron, um, he he kind of runs our coaching program. Um, and works for me full time, and so he's a phenomenal cyclist. And so he he kind of joined me every single day on the ride, and he did all 101 rides with me, and and made sure that uh, I was staying safe and had what I needed. And then uh, Casey swam with me a couple times a, a week, and then and then ran at least 18 miles with me every single day, and carried the pack and all my nutrition. And um, which those two boys were just insane support. And uh, Casey's a local school teacher here, and. Um, has the summers off, and so that's why he was able to do early mornings and then uh, afternoon and into the evenings. So, you know, you mentioned this kind of came to my mind when you mentioned that, you know, somebody was running with you carrying your nutrition and things like that. What kind of training and nutrition do you do to prepare for something like this? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, you can't can't train for a 100-day challenge, and so um, you just get yourself – physically fit to the point where you believe you can start and then you gain gain fitness and experience throughout the hundred days. Um, but fueling for the, for the hundreds, obviously a different task. I mean, we're eating eight to 10,000 calories a day uh, to try to try to keep the engine going. So what exactly does it, uh, does a guy, cause I know you, you, these triathlons, you have what they call transition periods. You go from the pool to, to the bike and then the bike to the, to the run. It's kind of how you did it. You did those two different transitions. How much are you eating in between those transitions? How much are you eating during each of these events each day? Yeah, very very little during transition. The goal is to get back out on the road and keep moving because um, we've got to finish and get you know get prepped for the next day every single day for a quarter of a year. And so most of the food consumption was done uh, while biking and while while running. Yeah. So okay, I got one other question for you on this, James. Is what's next? Like, what, what, have you thought about what is next? Or are you just taking time off now? You said, you know what, I've, I just completed an absolutely incredible accomplishment, but what, what is next for you? What, what are you thinking? Uh, physically, um, there's, there's not going to be a next. I'm going to get into my normal cycling, uh, competing, um, and just doing fun races. Um, I don't, I, I'm hundred percent satisfied. Um, I mean, we, we, we legitimately made sports endurance history. And um, so when you, when you do that, I don't know that there needs to be a, a next at this point. I'm going to join my family. We're going to go to Mexico next month in Puerto Vallarta. We're going to unwind. It's going to take me a long time to recover from this. You've you got to imagine there's 24 hours a day for a quarter of a year um, in order to set this record. 
and that's uh, when you can hear I've lost my voice and there's a lot of damage to my to my body, obviously. And so there's there's now the next phase, which is the recovery phase, and that's that's going to take some time. Um, and and what's next for me is is continuing my speaking career and our coaching programs. Um, I'm taking a few months off, but I'm gonna I'm gonna hit the road, and we're gonna start speaking again starting in August. We've got the documentary to edit and, and get out there. We've got the, a, a second book to write, and so there's a lot to do. Um, physical challenges. I don't need to top that right now. I'm totally satisfied. And if uh, sports history is not enough for people, then uh, that's on them. Um, When do you anticipate that documentary being uh, finished and released? And the same thing with with that book. Um, We're going to start the process right quick with both of them. Um, The goal is the first of of the year uh, for for both those projects. Uh, It's just going to take some time. But I I am starting speaking um, as early as August. Um, we've already, my bureau's already been booking uh, those events out. So hopefully within the next six months, a lot of stuff's going to start happening. So James, did you have a documentary crew following you around throughout all of this? Yeah, it was Mike the whole time. We had a crew following everybody the whole time. And so they're uh, currently in the editing process. Our hope is to, to get it in the Sundance Film Festival, being a local here and um, setting the record right here in the in the Wasatch Mountains. So that's going to be our goal. We need a quick turnaround in order to do that, but we're not going to sacrifice quality. Um, it was it was quite the journey, and so hopefully they captured it well. How, yeah, how much footage did they capture then? Oh, tons. I mean, there's cameras rolling the whole time. You got to think uh, a quarter of a year of footage rolling the whole time. So there, there's a lot to unpack. Uh, we'll see what to what angles they take and what what they decide to do with their creative um, editing skills. Well, James, like I said, it's been an absolute inspiration to follow you on Instagram throughout all of this. I, I, I can attest. I've seen the damage that you have incurred upon your body just watching yeah. these Instagram stories from your, your family and whatnot. I know your family is extremely proud of you. They've been very clear about that throughout this entire process. But I guess where can people find information about your speaking career, about the Conquer 100? Where do they need to go if they want to learn more about this? Yeah, the two best places is uh, ironcowboy.com. And also, uh, I think we're a pretty good follow um, uh, on Instagram at ironcowboyjames and on Facebook at ironcowboy. Uh, by, by the way, what's what's the impetus? What why, why the Iron Cowboy? Where did that come from? I wanted to ask. Yeah, early in my career, um, I, you know, Iron Man spectating is, is terrible. And I had little kids. I got five kids. And so I, I used to wear a cowboy hat during the marathon of, of big races so that they could see me coming and cheer dad on. And um, the public just kind of deemed me the iron cowboy. And so it stuck. That's a fantastic that so nickname. Cool. Yeah. That, that is awesome. Well, James, I guess for Alex and I are both going to say, we tip our cap to you because I'm with Alex. Just the thought of doing one of these in, in, in a, a day just is astounding to me. In fact, you did 101 straight days is just utterly phenomenal. Well, and uh, anybody that's not following me right now, now would be a great time. Uh, we're, we're launching a, a promotion this weekend that any merchandise that you do purchase, um, we'll be giving away um, an iFit treadmill. So oh, wow. uh, if, you wanna, if you want a shot at a treadmill this week from iFit, just go on there, jump on, and uh, give us a follow. We're going to open it up this afternoon. Uh, any purchases, you get an entry into that drawing. So. Awesome. Well, James, thank you again for taking some time. Best of luck in your recovery efforts, obviously, with getting your speaking career reignited here. Obviously, I'm sure COVID had an impact on that. We're hopeful that everything going forward is great for you. And I guess the next time you decide to do something crazy like this, we'll have you back on, all right? Awesome, man. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you. Thanks, James. There you go. James Lawrence, the Iron Cowboy.
man, that is, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm blown away. Like, <laughs> I just, I can't comprehend doing anything that's anywhere close to that tough. So, just for an example for people, Eric, do you have something you wanted to say? Yeah, when he said, oh, yeah, it was too easy. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> uh, easy's, uh, trust me, guys, I followed it on Instagram. He beat himself up, truly. Uh, we're talking lost toenails. He actually had one point where he got in a bike wreck and actually flipped over his handlebars, uh, jacked up his hip. The hip actually and it happened about midway through. There was some thought that he may have to end the project during after that bike accident. No, no, I'm talking about like when you, when you proposed the question, you know, why didn't you just do one of those? He was just like, oh, too easy. Uh, I'm telling you guys, he did a, he did 50 triathlons in 50 states in 50 days at one point, he, and he made a very good point. What else is there to prove? Yeah. He set a world record every day for 51 straight days, essentially. And what did he say? It totaled 14,000 miles? 14,000 miles overall. It's 2.4 mile mile swim every single day, which is tough enough. Yeah. 112 mile an hour bike ride. He did this is, by the way, he was based in Pleasant Grove, is where he lives. And so the Linden uh, Community Center pool, if any of you are familiar with Utah County, is where he did his swim every single morning, starting at 5 30. He did this starting March 1st, folks. He has gone through heat waves, he's gone through snowstorms, he's gone through rain, sleet, hail. He's been through it all over this hundred days. And he's done it rain or shine. And he's started early in the mornings, 5 30 every morning is when he started the swim. And so, and then he would finish. And early on in this project, he was running most of these marathons. And I, as I said, I tracked this. So I was watching this every day. My wife got annoyed with the fact that I kept watching this every day. Trust me. But he uh, he would finish these things sometimes eight, nine, ten o'clock at night. It was an all day, every day affair. And I got to tip my cap to him. Just utterly phenomenal to think of him doing that. Right here, by the way, in our backyard. He this is in Utah. All of it. So. Did you say 14,000 miles? Yeah, to the total distance covered was 112 miles an hour, uh, 112 miles on a bike every single day. It was a 26.2 mile an hour, it's a full marathon every day, and then 2.4 miles swimming every day. And he said it was just north of 14,000 miles total the, distance. The crazy thing about that is the circumference of the earth is just under 25,000 miles. Yeah. So he yeah. he covered <laughs> over half yeah, it was the, like the circumference what, three, of the globe. 3/5 of the yeah, just, and just like, I mean, yeah, I was curious. I Googled uh, Los Angeles, California to New York, uh-huh. Manhattan uh, via car. That's about 2,791 miles. Sure. So let me pull up the old calculator. Stall for me for a second. How many times would he have gone there and back what? from Los Angeles oh, to math New on York? Air. I know. Uh, DJ and PK taught me very early on in my run with them. Do not well, do that's math why on I air. asked you to stall. <laughs> <laughs> so you stall for it. You figure it out and get back to us. Eric. But it's just. It, This was an absolutely audacious, incredible thing that he set forth to do, and the fact that he accomplished it. And then, by the way, you know what? I did 100 of these. Let's do it again tomorrow. Let's do 101. Let's do one more. (laughs) Man, like, when he said he ate between eight to 10,000 calories a day, Uh that that right there just blew my mind. Uh, You know, having done some, like, you know, kind of training and some, you know, yeah, nutrition and things like that. Like, I mean, obviously, you look at me right now. I'm not in the, the in the in the midst of that right epi- now. You're the epitome of, of fit. Oh no, yeah, this you know, obviously, uh, no. But when I was doing that kind of sure. stuff, um, you know, like the, eating the right uh, amount of calories with the right kinds of food, that's not easy. You know, I yeah. mean, like, it's there are certain foods where it's just 
like I like to eat for enjoyment, you know, and when you're eating for fuel, some of those things, it's like it's hard to eat that amount of that specific food, yeah. but you need it. And to eat five times what I was trying to eat is like I just can't even comprehend like trying to do the yeah you know talking about doing math on air trying to just do the math of okay we need this many carbs and we need this much protein mm-hmm. every single day how are we going to carry this how are we going to transport this how are we going to consume it how are we going to consume it yeah. in the midst of all of this it's just I mean just there's you have, so much you that add that this. on top of just pushing through the pain pushing through all of that. And just the physical wear and tear on your body. And I was going to say, one thing I meant to bring up with him, I failed to do this, but I do know that throughout this process, probably some of you are thinking, okay, how much weight did he lose? He actually, I think, maybe dropped four or five pounds total. He kept his weight relatively stable. It was absolutely incredible. Go ahead, Eric. Yeah. You got I an mean, answer for us? Yes. Okay. One, he went back and forth from Los Angeles to New York two times round trip. So that means he went from Los Angeles to New York back to Los Angeles twice. Sweet. All right. Well, Plus one more. So, it's incredible, man. If he wanted to live in New York, like, but. and I remember I told you guys before we started the show, I was like, "Hey, we're gonna have this guy named James Lawrence on." And both of you looked at me like, "Who's James Lawrence?" And I said, "You guys know who the Iron Cowboy is?" Nope. So I think a lot of people this, we do now. This story needs to be more widely known. I, I was like, "You know what? We're gonna see if we can get him on air." I'm glad we did, but yeah, just I got to tip my cap to him because the most I have run a race is a 10k, and I'm. Not gonna lie, finishing that 10k, I feel like I accomplished something. The fact that he did 26.2 miles a day on top of riding a bike and swimming that much was mind blowing. It really, like I said, you know earlier, the only types of marathons that I'm ever associated with are movie marathons, <laughs> and you know those are those are hard enough for me. I can't imagine actually moving for that same, you know, yeah. length of time. So, yeah, tip of the cap to the Iron Cowboy. Big thank you to James Lawrence for joining us. All right, coming up next, we'll get to five minutes of and talk about some different topics going on in the sport. Uh, still looking for your guys' questions to answers to the question of the day here on the Saturday show. What are your expectations for Game 3 tonight between the Utah Jazz and the Los Angeles Clippers? We'll get to all of that coming up next right here on the Saturday show. We talk Jazz, Utes, Cougars, and Aggies, even on the weekend. weekend. You're locked on to the Saturday show on 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. Welcome back to the Saturday show here on the Zone Sports Network. Yawk and Lundy along for the ride here on the Saturday afternoon. This is what we call Five Minutes Of, and it's a segment we created when we relaunched the show. And we usually start this by talking about what we love to call Saki. So, Eric, do us the honors. Go ahead. Blocked by Pullman as they battle in the corner. Caulfield picks it up and scores! Series winner, Tyler Toffoli! And the Canadians to the Kings of the North! Pulisic! Barrison in the upper 90! In a match in which the U.S. has shown so much character! 
It's their first ever Champions League winner who played in the final, who answers the call in the very next final. It's Berardi. Spinazzola, smart save, and the loose ball tucked in. Italy have their second, and it's Ciro Immobile. And that may be enough to secure this opening win that they so crave in front of their own fans. Islanders win the draw. Paggio, a point-a-game player in the playoffs, moves it back for Dobson. His shot patted down by Raz. They score! Timmons blocked, Sanchez to Nechuskin, and a save by Flurry, and then Nechuskin with a second, great opportunity. 13-22 left to go, the only reason is because of the great save by Marc-Andre Fleury, not once but twice. Welcome to Saki. Good open there, by the way. Good job, Eric, on that. All right, let's start off. Uh, Saki, by the way, for those of the uninitiated that have been, not, have not been along for the ride, we took soccer and hockey, two sports that Lundy and I are both friends of, and just jammed it together. Uh, by the way, credit does go to our good friend uh, Clint Peterson out there. Uh, Clint, I hope you're doing well. I know you've faced some issues this week, some circumstances beyond your control. Hope you're doing all right. But let's talk first off about hockey here, Lundy. Where are we going? So last week with hockey, you would ask me a question okay. with the uh, Stanley Cup playoffs, if there was anything that I was surprised by. All right. And I had mentioned a little bit of surprise, but I wasn't overly surprised about Montreal, you know, getting into the first or getting past the first round into the second round and going up early on uh, Winnipeg. I am absolutely floored and shocked that Montreal not only advanced past the second round, but did so in a sweep. They swept in, yeah. I mean, you know, they were kind of the last team to really secure a playoff spot. And, man, they are they are impressive. Coming off of a Game 7 win in the first round to play a team that had a lot of rest because they swept my Oilers in the first round and then to sweep them, uh, that's impressive. I'm also surprised, and Eric, I, I apologize in advance, uh, I am surprised that... The Avalanche lost in the manner that they did. Um, the Vegas Golden Knights win that series 4-2. to two. Uh, After falling behind early in the series, they came back and uh, they, they won in surprising fashion. I, I thought that uh, Colorado was the favorite to win the Cup, um, or at least be in the Cup. And uh, for, for them to, to go out in the second round was a big surprise to me. So... Uh, Vegas and Montreal now square off in the semifinals. On the other side of the bracket, the New York Islanders and the Tampa Bay Lightning. Um, Isn't this a repeat of last year in the final in the in the conference final? I you know I, I don't, don't think the Islanders. I don't think were the Islanders there. were either. I thought it like, was because they were talking about the fact yeah. that Islanders and the Lightning were rematching. Could be. In the, in the I finals. think they might have played each other in like the second round. Okay. Yeah. It's, I feel like the Islanders haven't advanced quite this far in a while. It's it's. it's 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 unique to see a New York based team that wears blue and orange uh doing so well. So, um, you know, credit to them. But you're not a, you're not a jilted Oilers fan at all. Well, it's it's not even just, you know, like I was more making reference to the Mets and the Knicks. Okay, fair enough. But, you know. Oh, no, 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 no. Credit um, to Jake. He he got that right. Oh. The, uh, it, it is the Islanders. I thought it was a rematch were, of yeah, the conference it finals. A, it was a you are correct, rematch sir. of the conference finals. All right. Well, Eric and I, the hockey fans, are are wrong about hockey. And let me just say about <laughs> the Avalanche, 
What happened is the team just quit. They were up to okay. nothing, and they quit. I mean, they, they weren't gritty enough. They didn't have enough scoring. The goaltending fell apart down the stretch. And it, in the case of the Habs, I don't know if you feel this way, Lundy, but I just think it just won't shock me if they make it like a series with Vegas. I know oh. everyone thinks that they'll, go, that they'll get swept in four, but I think it goes six. I, you know, after them beating the, the Maple Leafs and the Jets in the way that they did, no, I, I'm with you. I wouldn't be surprised to see it be an actual series. I think that Vegas is and should be the favorite. But, I mean, you know, the Canadians, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're a team to watch. They can definitely make things interesting. Um, but it is fun to see, you know, two different, because the, the playoffs were a little bit unique this year where they had, you know, yeah, four brackets instead of four the two pods, brackets. Essentially, yeah. um, but there's two four seeds mm-hmm. in the semifinals. Uh, you know, one of which, by all means, should be an eight seed with <laughs> Montreal. Uh, but yeah, you know, there's there's not a single one seed that made the semifinals. So, you wow. know, we're we're looking. Uh, you know, the highest seeded team is Vegas. Okay, and uh, so this should be a lot of fun. Should be interesting to see how this progresses as we uh, get closer to the Stanley Cup. Yeah, I, I as I said to you guys. I, by the way, one thing I, I tweeted this out the other night when Vegas pulled through and won that series. What that franchise has accomplished, and they're four years in, if I'm not mistaken, at this point. I believe so. Yeah, the stuff that they've accomplished as a franchise, it's something that doesn't get talked enough about in pro sports. Yeah, I mean they they are they are one of the best run front offices in the league. Well, they did a good job with and, the... And the coach is incredible. Well, the expansion draft, they did a good job. I think they got Marc-Andre Fleury in yep. that expansion draft. They did. And he's been the backbone of this team, it feels like. He's just been... Absolutely. ...impenetrable and just... Yeah, so if anyways... If can overcome some of the uh, behind-the-scenes drama there with him sure. and his agent. Sure, yes, but it's... Yeah, they, they've done some incredible things. But anyway, so there you go. That's the hockey part of this. Let's talk a little bit about soccer. And first off... I'm not going to lie, Eric, I know you saw this live. Uh, what happened with Christian Eriksen earlier today in the European Championships? Scary, scary scenes in there in Copenhagen. Like, I, man, I, I'm i not going to lie. I feared for a minute there we saw a guy pass away on the field. Yeah, I was pretty convinced, like, especially when they showed the shot of, like, a little bit of a technical foul on ESPN because they stuck on the field for, like, it felt like half an hour. Like, they could have thrown back to the studio, but when you when you get, like, the shot of, like, his wife breaking down in the hands of a goaltender, like, that's a little bit too it, much It's for a me. bit of an unprecedented scenario. They, I'm sure that their producers are kind of like, uh, what do we do? Yeah, so. I, I have never seen – I don't think I – and I mean, I was kind of Wikipediaing. I I've never seen anything like that happen yeah. on mm-hmm. on a Stum- sports stumble and collapse like that. Yeah. It brought back memories of Hank Gathers. If you guys know that story, Hank Gathers with Loyola Marymount had a heart condition, ended up passing away on the court playing for Loyola Marymount in the early 1990s. 
just a scary situation on that. But our, our thoughts and prayers go out to Christian Erickson. He's been stabilized at the hospital. They're actually in the middle of that match. They've resumed it. Uh, they've resumed that match. Finland and Denmark playing, but just scary, scary scenes. It's just one of those things. Also Jibble. adding to that, UFO uh, reported that he was able to speak with his teammates from good. the hospital. Good, that's good. good. That's good, good to hear. hear. Uh, a couple other things. Uh, by the way, congratulations to the United States men's national team. They win the CONCACAF Nations League Cup. And as I told you guys last week, don't ask me what it is. I don't know how to explain what it is. <laughs> but guess what? USA's on top. They beat Mexico 3-2, to two, and that was a crazy crazy match if you guys watched it i don't know if you guys did but had everything in it usa usa yeah it had everything i was not able to 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 watch it but i did see a lot of the twitter reaction and i know that people were just you know it's one of those that i'm kind of glad i didn't watch because you know i I don't know that i could have handled the cardiac (laughs) like stress of it if you if everything you need to know about that match you can pretty much see an extra time let's just put it this way we had we had a fan is trying to get onto the set uh cbs sports producing trying to get on the set getting chased off by security live on air a fan invades the pitch they had homophobic slurs being hurled by the mexican fans that halted the match in extra time uh uh Crazy goals. Christian uh, Pulisic coming up huge for the USA. That match literally had everything you could want. Yeah, watching that soccer match, I was thinking, Jake, I was like, this is like maybe one of the most like complete (laughs) and like best soccer matches I've ever watched in my entire life. Everything. I I mean, I I don't, I'm not making, I'm not being, I mean, a backup goaltender coming off the bench making huge saves in the clutch. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. By the way, yeah, you got to give uh, props to the backup goalkeeper for the USA in his hometown of Denver, keeping a PK out. Just had everything. So props to the U.S. men's national team on that. Uh, the international break for Major League Soccer actually ending this weekend. So Real Salt Lake will resume action next week against their cohabitant here along the Wasatch Front, the Vancouver Whitecaps. Uh, Vancouver's been here because of COVID concerns. The Canadian teams came south of the border. They're going to be staying here until at least July 1. They've said that far is what we know. And they will square off for the first time at Rio Tinto Stadium next Friday when both teams resume action uh, coming off the international break. So July 1st is the potential return date to Canada? That's the earliest they would return is what they said. That's kind of what I am hoping for because, uh, you know, like obviously not knowing a lot about soccer, but Mm -hmm. just what that would mean to those teams. July 1st is actually Canada Day. Yeah. Yeah. and for them to be able to return home mm-hmm. on their national holiday to, you know, celebrate that, I, I feel like that would be really meaningful. So I'm kind of, you know, especially after this this long COVID weirdness, just yeah. the all of the all of the blah that all of us have been through. I feel like that would be just a really special moment for those teams and those fans if that that could be what happens. So that's that's what I'm hoping for because I I just think that would be a really cool. Yeah, story. Uh, so funny enough, Austin FC just won up uh, one nothing in one of the first matches back from the international break there in MLS action. So that's one thing. All right, one other thing we need to get to here in five minutes of, and it's actually something that Eric suggested. I think it's absolutely something we need to do, and we're going to talk about it. The sixty and sixty. Uh, obviously, that started earlier this week with Hans and Scotty counting on the top sixty players in uh, the state of Utah, college-wise. goes across five different universities, by the way, folks. We've got representation from five different Division I institutions this year. We have three guys in in the first three announcements. So let's talk about them. So at number 60, 
Cam Lampkin uh, playing for Utah State University. And Cam, I'm not going to lie, I actually nailed this one. I had him at number six. He's a cornerback out of Mesquite, Texas, playing for Utah State. Showed some things during 2020 during that abbreviated season. But uh, what are your guys' thoughts on Cam? You know, I think this is a you know pretty good ra- ranking for him. I had him slightly higher, okay, um, but not not too much far. You know, so I, I do feel like this is an accurate placement for him. Um, you know, and great way to start off the sixty and sixty. Yeah, played in thirteen games as a freshman in twenty nineteen and started four of the six games in twenty twenty. Eric, any thoughts from you? Yeah, I had him a little bit higher. A lot of what my rankings came down to was just. Uh, positional value. Sure. Uh, so I had all the cornerbacks a little bit higher. I had okay. them at 48. Yeah, so for the season in 2020, you had 20 tackles, one sack, two tackles for loss, along with two pass breakups. Obviously looking to take on a bigger role this year as Utah State looks to rebound from a pretty rough 2020. Number 59, his teammate Justin McGriff on the offensive side of things. The one thing about McGriff that I find absolutely fascinating is how big he is. Six foot six, 220 pounds. He is a huge, huge target out there. Uh, he's a former junior college transfer from ASA College of Miami. Finished the 2020 season with 15 receptions for 85 yards and two touchdowns. Led the team in touchdown catches, but also second in receptions and receiving yards on the season. Uh, kind of an, a little bit of an indication of how rough things offensively were for Utah State last year, but obviously hoping brighter days are ahead. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Lundy? Uh, you know, yeah, last season was rough for Utah State, but I think that, you know, when you have a big target like that, that that's always going to be helpful no matter, you know, who you've got behind center. If they can get the ball out to him, he's got a pretty good shot at it just by virtue of his size alone. Sure. Eric, anything? You know, just talking to my sources, Ajay. Um, Your uh, uh, hashtag uh, sources. Um, certain guy named Ajay Salveson. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, um... <laughs> I've, I'm just hearing that this, you know, Anderson system's going to be, you know, a lot of quick passing, a lot of stuff at the line of scrimmage, and a big target can, you know, benefit from that. Yeah, he's a guy that if he puts on 30 pounds, he'd be a great tight end in my opinion, but he's very good at wide receiver as it is already. Just a huge, huge target. All right, and then our final uh, reveal so far, and like I said, these are going to happen every day. Monday through Friday, tune into Hans and Scotty, 1.30 every day. They reveal the next player in the 60 and 60. It's a really, really fun thing. I've been uh, a voter in it ever since they started. I believe this is the fourth or fifth edition of it. I have a lot of fun voting in it. I know you guys voted in it as well. But at number 58, BYU place kicker Jake, his nickname Jake the Make, Old Droid. You Way know, too low, in my opinion. I I had him positional oh. value, and you had a kicker high. <laughs> yeah, no. what is with you? I, I had a I, well, a, honestly, a good kicker can win you a game. I mean, and and he is Jake won games more, for BYU. I and, can tell and you that. And he much. is one of the more clutch kickers, and he's old, and he's been there, and he's get, and he's, he's only a, a sophomore. What are you talking about? It feels like he's been there for three. <laughs> he years. served a mission. He's twenty three years old. I mean, he he has got. He's got it in the bag every time that he steps on the field. I didn't have him super high, but I had him at 55. Okay. Wendy, what are your thoughts on Jake? I'll give you some of my thoughts on him, and I'm a little more engrossed with BYU than I think either of you are. Right. I had him a little bit higher as well. Um, I don't think I had him probably as high as Eric had him. Uh, but you I've know. got him much higher than Eric. I'll explain here in a minute. Oh, all right. Um, but I did have him higher. Uh, you know, Maybe I'm a little bit you know, biased. I love, like, where did I have him? 
Um, let me look through my list here, find out exactly where. I had him number 45. Okay. Um, so you had him higher than Eric then. Yeah. 55. What? And so. Oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe I did. Okay. Well, but yeah, I I just like having players that are place kickers in the 60 and 60. Like, you know, it's one of those things. I, don't, I both like it ironically and unironically to have a kicker that is just seen as one of the best players in the state. Sure. Um, you know, it's just, but you know, Jake Oldroyd has proven that he's the best kicker in the state right now. Um, you know, he's clutch when he needs to be. And so he's absolutely deserving of his spot, I think. And, you know, while we each had him higher than where he finished, you know, it's, he, he definitely provides a lot of value. Yeah, so uh, I actually had him 41 on my list. Uh, I think he is an absolute weapon. Uh, He's the first kicker in many, many years at BYU to hit multiple kicks from over 50 yards. He was 13 of 13 field goals last year. He was absolute nails. A Lou Groza Award finalist, which goes to the top kicker in the sport. Uh, He's also a third-team AP All-American. And like I said, he's just a sophomore. This kid is, he's got some special days ahead of him, in my opinion. And he was an unknown, folks. Uh, I don't know how many people know this. He uh, came off the bench ice cold in Kalani Satake's very first game as a head coach back in 20, what was that, 2016. He was a kid that had walked on at BYU from South Lake Carroll High School in the Dallas area in Texas. Uh, BYU had some kicking issues in that game. They send him out there. He makes the game-winning kick to lift BYU to that victory over Arizona. And everybody's like, who is this kid? None of us had any clue. He's wearing these neon green cleats. And I've covered BYU as long as anybody on this station, and I had not a clue who he was. He got that Jake the Make nickname from that first kick, and he's ever since, even before and after his mission, he's been absolute nails. I think he is an absolute weapon, and BYU is lucky to have this kid. He he can really get after it. I, I'm the one thing I wonder about him is how big of a range he ultimately does have. Uh, he's hit a 54 yarder, so he he can he can boot it. I just wonder uh, has he maxed out his range? But regardless, you go 13 to 13, pretty impressive numbers there. He also was the kickoff specialist last year. Had I believe 47 touchbacks on 86 kicks, over 50 percent touchback percentage as well. So there you go. That is the 50 and 50 rundown for you guys, catching you guys up on them. We'll do it again next week with obviously numbers. Uh, what we got? We're going to have 57 through what, 53? So I actually, we'll have a lot of fun with that. We'll continue to do that throughout the coming weeks as the 50 and 50. It's not 50, 50 60 and 60 play out. My bad. All right. <laughs> coming up next, we'll wrap up the show. Our final thoughts and shots before we go right here on the Saturday show. Let's go live! We talk jazz, utes, cougars, and Aggies, even on the weekend. weekend. You're locked on to the Saturday show on 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. Well, Hi guys, we like ska music and the bangles. What's up? I've come to my Is that your best impression of me? What was that? <laughs> That I, I felt I needed to to play for Alex because during a uh, jazz post post game show that I filled in uh, uh, for him for we play they play this fantasy game okay. and I had to impersonate Alex Lumber and so <laughs> my best Alex Lumber impression. Well, hi guys, we I like ska music and the Bengals. What's up? <laughs> Excellent choice, by the way, on ska songs. Like this is one of those songs that like. 
like, I mean, you guys probably heard me off. Like, as soon as this song came, I was just like, oh. oh yeah. Like, I, I can feel my body relax whenever this song comes on. Like, I just groove to this one. All right. Well, it's been a fun show. We're rounding out the Saturday show here on the Zone Sports Network. A couple of things feedback-wise. Our good friend Scooter Burke reached out and said, hey, do you know if Mike Conley is playing tonight? Scooter, hopefully you heard us earlier on the show. He is unavailable tonight due to a, well, they're terming a mild hamstring strain. Uh, he says he's planning on being at the Vivian Arena on Monday night uh, for the watch party. By the way, if you guys want to come out and watch the game, if you're a Jazz fan, get out here to the arena. Concessions will be open. They'll have the big screen rolling. It should be a fun night out here in Salt Lake for Game 3 tonight. Uh, pre-game coverage here on The Zone begins at 5 o'clock with Jake Scott as well as Tim Lacombe getting you ready for the game. And obviously you'll have David Locke and Ron Boone on the call at 6.30. We'll have full pre, half, and post-game coverage for you guys throughout the night. Uh, we asked the question on social media, what are your guys' expectations for this game tonight? I uh, had a couple people reach out and say that they expect the Jazz to battle. Uh, Clint Peterson says, I feel like with a 2-0 series lead, the Jazz will err on the side of caution concerning Conley's hamstring. We already know that. So I hope that isn't a mistake. The Clippers could gain confidence and momentum with a resounding W tonight. Absolutely a concern in that regard. Mm-hmm. They build some momentum, obviously, at home, help them out. Um, and also, I mentioned the fact that Clint was having, uh, he's been going through some struggles recently. He says, uh, I'm feeling solid. Thanks, fellas, with a pound sign uh, emoji to us. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Lundy, anything before we go in terms of what you expect tonight for the Jazz? You know, I expect a close one. Mm-hmm. I think that the Jazz are going to come out, they're going to play well. But I don't think it's going to be enough to overcome the Clippers at home, um, which, I mean, I know that Shane had said that they haven't played well at home in the playoffs, with the exception of Game Seven. They've they've really struggled there. I do think that's more of an anomaly, um, because that last series against Dallas was really weird. That the road team won yeah. the first six games. <laughs> NBA um, history made. Yeah. So, I think that they'll be a little bit more settled in. I do think that the Jazz will be a little bit more cautious, especially with uh, both Bogey and Donovan getting ankle tweaks in that last game. I think the Jazz will be a little bit more cautious. I think that they're going to not quite be as aggressive. They're not, I mean, they're going to try to win. Yeah. Don't, you know, don't you misunderstand. Don't, don't, you don't you know. go out there thinking, oh, hey, we're going to take it. We're going to take an L here. Right. You know, it's, it's not, like the soccer mentality where you go on the road trying to get a point instead of the three points. Mm -hmm. It's they're going to come out. They're going to try to win, but I don't feel like this is a must win game for them. And I think that they understand and they know that where it is a must win game for the Clippers. And I think the difference in those two mentalities will give the Clippers the edge. Okay. All right, Eric, any thoughts from you before we go here? I kind of think the exact opposite. I think the, the Jazz looked at what happened to the Mavericks and see that they can't let the Clippers back into the system, uh, into series. Uh, I just think they come. Out, they might lose tonight, but I I do think that it's going to be very close and they're gonna they're gonna come out fired up. Okay, uh, I I'm I expect a split. 
That's what I expect in LA this weekend. I don't. I guess over the next two games, I don't know whether it's a loss tonight, a win Monday, but we'll have to see what happens. All right, we are out of time. A big thank you to all of you for joining us this afternoon. It's been an absolute privilege and an honor to be with you guys. Uh, until next week, have a great week. Make sure to join us on Monday with DJ and PK bright and early. Talk about whatever happens tonight, obviously, and get ready for Game Four on Monday. Until then, have a great Saturday. This has been the Saturday Show right here on 97.5 FM, 1280 AM, and the Zone Sports Network.